Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking with Char Miller. Dr. Miller is the W.M. Keck Professor of Environmental Analysis and History at Pomona College and is the author of West Side Rising. How San Antonio's 1921 flood devastated a city and sparked a Latino environmental justice movement, which came out with Trinity University Press in 2021 and just recently in 2022 was a finalist for the Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists. Welcome to the New Books Network, Char. Good to have you and congratulations. Oh, thank you so much, Steve. Uh, And it's great to be on. I'm thrilled that uh, we get to talk about West Side Rising. I'm excited, too. And why don't we start, as we always do on the show, by just hearing a little bit about yourself and your background, and in particular, how you became interested in history. Aha. So that's actually a great question, and I, I think I have a story, but I'm not sure it's entirely accurate. Um, but both of my parents were huge readers. Um, they didn't like one another, but they loved books. Um, and I was very fortunate, at, at least in one part of that process, um, because the house was just filled with um, books of all kinds, mostly U.S. history, but any kind of nonfiction, and as it turns out, also fiction. So I, my sisters and I were big readers by default. Um, and for me, um, I... I can't tell you why it was true, but but um, was always fascinated by by history. Um, <laughs> I had a second grade teacher, Miss Lakava, awesome woman, um, who who graded me down for misspelling Roger Williams's name in a in a test, um, and that pissed me off if I knew that language as a, as a second grader, um, and and made me realize that actually. Things like that matter, um, and and so I sort of became um, obsessed with because I was um, in elementary school during the centennial for the Civil War in 1960, 61, um, and just went ballistic over that over that war and uh, did one after another project. I think I drove my teachers crazy, uh, and so you know. What could my father do but to take me to Gettysburg with my sisters and just let me run like crazy? Um, and, it, and thinking about that process, um, history was both a thing I read about, but in terms of going to every colonial battlefield I could get to from Connecticut um, and every Civil War battlefield if we went down south where my father was from, um, meant that it was also a lived experience in some very visceral way, very environmental way, I would now say. Um, and while I think it's 
easy to draw straight lines from one's childhood to one's current obsessions professionally. Uh, in many respects, that's true. Um, and I found that with many of the biographies that I've written, um, that you can find these moments that, you know, may add up to a source of that. Um, but I also found that that it was the thing that I got rewarded for most in school. And, you know, for those who love science, that was probably true for them. For me, it was the humanities and particularly for history. Uh, and by the time I went to um, Pitzer College here in Claremont, I was convinced because I had transferred in from NYU. I was convinced that the professors I had here throughout Claremont uh, many of whom I am still very close with, Dan and Helen Horowitz, for example, at Scripps College, now formerly of Smith College, um, are still great friends and were huge influences on me because I walked into Dan's office uh, spring of 1974 and I said, how did you become you? Um, and that really began the process of thinking about, well, you could actually do this for a living, which was news to me. Um, and I've been doing it ever since. So, um, some of this is familial, some of it is social context, some of it was trying to figure out why we were in Vietnam and place and issues like that that led me to um, William A. Williams's work and others um, that really helped me understand the thinking process behind being an historian who lives in a particular time um, and how that would then influence how you read another time or another person. Uh, things that I've been working on ever since, and West Side Rising is one of the latest examples of that. Well, that was going to be my next question, is what brought you to this topic in particular? How do you go from a kid exploring you know, Revolutionary War battlefields in New England to San Antonio? And why this particular disaster in this city's history? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, and here again, biography matters. Um, my first job after graduate school was at the University of Miami. Uh, my wife and I arrived, uh, she was pregnant, um, and the Mary Elisa flotilla came steaming into South Florida. Uh, and Miami, for those of you who have watched Miami Vice back in the day, um, it, it was much worse than Miami Vice. Uh, and so it was pretty clear that raising a child um, in Miami was going to be tough, especially when one morning um, Swatska. Uh, squad showed up, banged on our door and said, stay inside. We've got some drug dealers down the hall, down the street. <laughs> it's like, okay, um, can we get out of here? Uh, and so I got a job at Trinity University in San Antonio, where I taught for the next 26 years uh, before moving to Claremont. And it was almost immediately that I began to realize a couple of things, one of which is I'm now an adult, I'm a parent, um, I live in a community that I don't really understand um, and was built in a way that doesn't make sense to me. I grew up in and around New York City uh, and that's a gridiron and you can find your way anywhere in a gridiron. You can't find your way in a city that was sprawling like crazy across an 18th and 19th century streetscape that was sort of gridded, but really wasn't. Um, and so one of the fun things for me um, was just getting lost in San Antonio. And it turns out getting lost, like confusion, is fruitful because suddenly you have to f not only figure it out physically, but then start to ask questions about why this place looks the way it does. And as it turns out, the community we lived in was a post-1921 flood 
um, automobile suburb, the first real automobile suburb in San Antonio. And I knew about automobile suburbs elsewhere, but this was the first time I had lived in one in this way. Uh, and that's important because on the eastern edge of the city ran a dam, uh, what's called the Olmos Dam, a dam that was constructed in the aftermath of the 20, uh, 1921 flood that the book is about. And it's at that moment that I started to realize that I didn't just understand this place physically, I didn't understand its watershed. And so thinking about that dam and why it was constructed um, led me to start to think about, and this is in the middle 1980s, so this project has been a, a long gestation, longer than any elephants. Um, and I was sort of thinking about, like, why that dam there? When I knew the flood had devastated not just the downtown, which made sense because the, the dam protected the downtown, uh, but I began to recognize that that dam destroyed the West Side, which was not a majority Hispanic population, but the majority of people who died, in fact, close to 90 plus percent, were Spanish last named. Um, and so I began to realize that there were two cities that this flood entered into, one of which was a downtown core that material goods were lost, but very few lives. Um, and the other flood was racing through this city um, on its western side, which was really the, the haven for a very small black population that was poor, a very large Hispanic and white population that was poor, though it was almost entirely, with one exception on the west side, uh, uh, Hispanic surnamed folks who, who perished in that flood and or were injured. So I suddenly began to realize that this watershed, which was vast, had different components to it. And I needed to understand that if I was actually thinking about writing about this issue. So it's luck that I moved to San Antonio. It was observational that I managed to start to think about a dam, which I'd never thought about before, um, and then started to think about the social consequences of flood control, which when I started to do that work and think through these problems, there wasn't a lot of um, historiography or political literature to guide me through. Uh, and so I think the book is innovative to a degree in trying to think through these issues. Um, but it also was um, um, the, the good fortune of living in a city that, that I came to love, um, but which as this book demonstrates, has a lot of social issues that revolved, emerged out of that flood, exposed by that flood, and then in some ways reified by its aftermath. Well, I want to get into the uh, story that you tell about the flood and the narrative of both the disaster and its long uh, aftermath. But before we do that, I just want to ask one question about sources, because yeah. in uncovering the story of the flood and its aftermath and all that, I know that you did, in fact, uncover and utilize several new primary sources for this book. So can you tell us a bit about these sources and how you found them? Yeah, so this is, um, um, it, when you, you know, floods are ephemeral. They come and they go. But their aftershocks can be huge, as you know from your own work. And so... I was trying to find places where those shocks were registered. I could see it in the streetscape and have been able to sort of write about that in the book. The physical built landscape reflects the way in which the city responded. 
But one of the things that scared the heck out of me as an historian is the county records, the county building was flooded and its records went flushed down to somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico at some point. Um, so I, the ecclesiastical records disappeared. So I couldn't do some of the work that we tend to do, which is to go to archives in a city um, and start digging around in what, what was, was available. Well, it turns out there's not a lot available. Um, and so I I, I started to think about, well, who was around um, and who was writing sort of the first impressions. And the logic is you go to journalists. Uh, and so I just dug through the English language newspapers first and foremost to see what I could locate. Um, and small stories, little squibs started to pop up that cued me that there was material I, I hadn't really thought about because like I didn't know what I was doing. Um, one of those stories led me to a uh, Spanish mutual aid society called Cruz Azul, um, Blue Cross, which was, as it turns out, an organization founded uh, in Mexico that then um, had chapters in places like San Antonio. And San Antonio may have been the first chapter in, uh, in the U.S., um, but I couldn't find anything about Cruz Azul except that a fact that it existed. And I went, you idiot. There were Spanish language newspapers in San Antonio, many of them. But it turns out they, like the English language newspapers, all of their printing presses were either in a basement or at street level. So they got shut down. Uh, but, but it turns out one of the fastest to recover was La Prensa. Um, and so with my students, I started reading... Uh, La Prensa for the month or more after the flood. And suddenly I started looking at advertisements for a book um, called, in English, it's the, the Tragic Flood in San Antonio. Um, and I went, <laughs> what is this thing? And I mean, this book came out within a week of the flood. Um, every Spanish bookstore had an ad uh, touting it. A second edition came out shortly thereafter. And I only know that because I went into uh, the University of Texas at San Antonio's archives and the archivist there said, hey, have you seen this? And I went, I've been looking for that. Um, and so they digitized it and I began to realize that I could do a companion volume of this remarkable document written by Spanish language journalists. Um, publishing later in various Spanish language newspapers that then were collated into a book that appeared within a week of the flood's aftermath, in which they talked about um, confirming and sort of opening up stories that people told them about how they intervened in the flood to save people, how their lives and property were devastated, um, and brilliantly articulated what has become a narrative arc in the book, the distinction between a flood that destroyed a commercial center, but no housing, and one that destroyed housing and people, a story that was largely untold. So that language, um, that document really unopened up this issue. But it turns out, um, and I, I open up the acknowledgments with this story, that there was another way to interpret this flood um, when a guy came into my office at Trinity University, banged on the door, carrying a shopping bag, um, and said, I hear you're working on the 21 flood. And this is like the early 90s. And I've been giving small talks around town. So that's probably how he knew. 
Uh, and I said, yeah. But my eyes are riveted on that shopping bag because, like, I'm an historian and I'm seeing a story here. Uh, and he pulls out of this shopping bag a U.S. Army report on the 1921 flood that they wrote. And I think I may have been the only other person to read it outside of the military itself. It was filled with documentation from the Army's point of view, there were multiple bases in the city of San Antonio. It calls itself today Military City USA, uh, and it was then as well. Um, and not only did they send hundreds of soldiers out of Fort Sam Houston and elsewhere to pull people out of the flood, but they also sent in its immediate aftermath the Signal Corps, the camera crews, who started recording the flood even as it was still at high tide. And some of the most extraordinary photographs in the book came directly from these pretty um, uh, daring military photographers. But that wasn't enough for the Army. I mean, this is the Army, after all, two years after the Great War, because they did two other things. They used this flood to train engineers to see what damage and how to assess damage in the aftermath of a disaster or, one could argue, a war. So two ways they did this, one of which is engineers did ground truth surveys of every single creek and every single dam, um, every bridge that crossed those creeks and literally walked up and down these creeks to see what had happened. And then they sent three overflights of um, World War Two Air World War One aircraft um, to take photographs of so they had on the ground truthing and aerial surveys of the three major of three the San Antonio River and then the West Side Creeks multiple West Side Creeks and their and their destruction <laughs> I just wigged out when I realized what I had. Um, and then the final piece was recognizing that the Red Cross had come onto the scene. I just sent a note to the National Archives and I said, do you have anything from the Red Cross on the 1921 flood in San Antonio? And they said, come up. So I went up. They had five or six folders of correspondence, telegrams, photographs. Also, in the cover of the book's photograph comes from the Red Cross, an astonishing piece of, of sort of contemporary photography. And um, I started going through these letters, these telegrams, and realized not only were they on the ground um, and doing good work on the ground to alleviate suffering, bringing food, bringing clothing and the like, but they're also recording the racist responses by the local chapter of the Red Cross. And so all of a sudden I had multiple ways by which to interpret what took place in that aftermath of the 1921 flood uh, brought to me by Spanish language journalists, by the U.S. Army, by the Red Cross, um, and by these compelling resources that helped me see that this was not just a flood that killed people of a particular ethnicity in a particular site. But you could predict that this was going to happen in part because of the racism embedded in those who were philanthropically engaged with the very rescue operation of those who lived on the West Side. Um, and I know 
the names of many of the people because their great-grandchildren still lived in San Antonio. I know the neighborhoods in which they lived, all of which were elevated above the floodplain, which was part of what streetcars in the city of San Antonio allowed, that if you had disposable income, you could get out of the flood control, flood zones. Um, and so effectively, as a shorthand uh, expression of this uh, experience in the city and also the book, the whiter you were and wealthier you were, the drier you were. The darker your skin or the more poor you were, the more likely you were to die or at least to be injured by any flood, let alone the 1921 flood. And so spatial organization of a city um, helped me understand the place where I lived, the community in which I lived, which was built deliberately to house through covenants and other things, um, white people of means um, who were elevated above the flood and in fact behind the dam. So if it ever went, they would be high and dry. Uh, and this is a process that took me a long time to sort of dig through. Those sources traveled with me from uh, San Antonio when I moved to Claremont in 2007. Um, and then became sort of um, obsessively analyzed over the next 14 years or so as I wrote the book. Um, so that's a way to think about how sources can really shape a story that I thought might have been one story. And it turns out there's multiple voices that if you can think about how those voices might be located, can give you a, a much richer tale. Well, let's get into those stories a bit, and I want to start by just talking about the city itself. You just did a little bit of work then to yeah. explain the context of San Antonio, but I'm wondering if you can go a bit more in depth into describing what San Antonio was like in the early 20th century. What were its neighborhoods? What was its sort of urban geography? And very specifically, what was the city's relationship with water and its waterways? Yeah, great. Great question. So the first thing to know about San Antonio... Um, and let's blame the Spanish for this decision, is that it's built inside a watershed, actually multiple watersheds, because the San Antonio River is fed by creeks from the west side and south side uh, that are off the main trunk of it. So it's a city that sits within a watershed whose northern extent is actually the rumpled end of the Great Plains, for those of you who understand Texas, the hill country, uh, what's known as the Edwards uh, Plateau, um, is the end of the Great Plains sweeping down from Canada. And so San Antonio is nestled in the foothills, or at least parts of it are, which means it's cut through by 10, maybe more creeks, including what becomes the San Antonio River. So the Spanish, understandably, given who they were, not only set up missions, but set up a civilian population who are going to be sedentary agriculturalists. They're going to farm. So they need to be close to water supplies. Even when building acequias, irrigation ditches, and the Spanish were really good at that, they still had to stay and live within a compact zone so that you could walk to water for your domestic needs and also sluice water for your agricultural ones. Makes perfect sense, except this place they will call San Antonio um, is located within what the National Weather Service calls Flash Flood Alley. And there's a reason for that. And here's where climate and geography matter if you happen to be San Antonio or Austin and the communities that lie between it, all of which are in this Flash Flood Alley. 
The Gulf of Mexico is about 150 miles away. Its bathtub warm waters flow as a normal course southwesterly off of that warm site, which means moisture is flowing uphill to get to San Antonio and Austin and communities around it. And when it reaches those foothills and the Edwards Plateau, it starts to rise extensively, which is where it hits cooler air and we get convection and all of these things start to happen, which is why one of my, one of my great sleeping habits in San Antonio was on nights when we had these incredible thunderstorms. I mean, literally our house would rock I would sleep through it. Oh, God, I loved the noise for some reason. It was like white noise and I loved it. Nobody else in the household did. But I can explain that climatologically because I understood what at that point was, was happening. But that's also key to floods. I mean, these storms can drop 10 to 15 inches in an astonishingly short period of time. And that water has to go somewhere. So it will hit the foothills and immediately sleuth south and east. So the water, the air is moving southwest, the waters are rolling southeast. So it drops and it runs fast, which means the floods are quick, but the very speed of those floods meant that they were quite damaging, as the Spanish discovered. In 1819, a century before the 1921 flood, a flood that might have been actually larger than the 21 flood tore through the adobe-built town and basically eviscerated it in many respects. So for the, anybody who knows the Alamo, and how can you not, um, it was nicely cited by the Spanish to be just above the 1819 waterline, as it turns out was also true for the 1921 flood. So it was on slightly elevated ground, but much of the rest of the city wasn't. And so um, that 19... 1819 flood, and then a series of floods that had happened in the 18th century and floods that would happen between 1819 and 1921, demonstrated that building in a watershed is never a really good idea, even though that's what you had to do for agriculture. But it turns out the Spanish and then the Mexican state um, and ultimately the United States, which would arrive in the 1840s, um, simply added on to what the Spanish had located as a, um, as a community living within a watershed that frequently flooded because of geography and climate and the clash of those things with the human geography that was unfolding. So that's part of the story with these watersheds. And one of the ways it was clear to me that you could still see the relationship to these watersheds is that I would take groups and, and, and family visitors and the like on walking tours of the downtown in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and I would talk to them about, look, we're now in the 18th century streetscape and you can see this as it, as it was displayed. But you could also see the 19th century extension of that streetscape and the widening of avenues and the like that only became sluice points for floods, by the way. And then there was the post-1921 city that was still evident. Many of the building, in fact, most of the buildings that were built in the immediate aftermath of the 1921 flood between 1921 and the start of the Depression, so 31-32, are still central to the city skyline. And so you could see three, roughly three centuries of 
urban spatial development, um, if you just took your time walking, one of the things that I love to do, um, you slow down, you look at what you're looking at, you're thinking about it, and in truth, um, you can see some of the 19th century streetscape that got destroyed in the 21 flood replicated in the very buildings. Literally, they took old building blocks from buildings that were destroyed and put them into the post-flood uh, structures. So there's a, there's a really interesting way in which a city speaks about its disasters through the very buildings and streetscapes um, that we think of as not having stories. But it turns out, of course, they are um, rich in history, if you know what you're looking for. Hearing you describe San Antonio and the way that its history is, is written on its urban landscape, you know, you're making me wish that I had read this book before going to the, the recent Western History <laughs> Conference in San Antonio. It would have been, you know, walking around the city with totally different eyes. Yeah. Um, it's it's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. I should have led a tour at that conference. <laughs> Let's talk about the flood itself, which actually begins the book. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not easy to, to describe such a, a wide-ranging disaster briefly, but... In short, what happened on September 9th, 1921, and what made this disaster so unequal in the destruction that it wrought? Sure. So that, that I, I made a decision about, you know, you're, whenever you write anything, whether it's an essay, an article, an op-ed, or whatever, you try to figure out, okay, what, what's going to grab people? Well, if you're going to write about a flood, you might as well write about the flood um, and sort of give people graphically as best I'm able to do as a writer – um, the, a sense of what happened, um, how people experienced what happened in as many voices as I could pack into the introduction. And the other thing that I was committed to doing was to tell the story as best as a white guy can do so from the West Side experience, um, a part of the city that I did not live in when we were there. Um, and I thought that one of the ways to sort of cue readers was to tell the story about the flood on the west side before I told the story about the downtown um, and the damages that were wrought there. And there was a, there's a political reason for that. The historiography of the flood, anybody who has written about it before, has always talked about what the English language newspapers talked about. Understandably, that's what they utilized which was the devastation to the downtown core, to the urban economy, and the, the disarray that occurred there. Well, that meant that the West Side's experience was already subordinated as a consequence of um, the way in which whites of the day experienced that flood. But I knew from oral histories that people had given that I was able to take uh, from uh, second and third generation people who told me stories about their family's experience. And when I'm in this case, people who lived in uh, higher elevated areas and um, who actually didn't know the flood had happened. The only thing they ever heard were the stories about the downtown flood. So I thought, all right, you know, part of my job here is to sort of shift the narrative as I'm able to do so. So what I was able to do was to find through the Spanish language newspapers and very effective English language journalism was to help people understand the experience of those uh, Hispanic, poor white, poor black folks who lived on the West Side as best I was able to do it. 
And again, I used the journalists of the day who were really good about just walking up and down the creeks in the immediate aftermath, talking to people about their experiences and was able to gather enough of those stories that it helped. So when the storm broke, a storm that was um, uh, a tropical storm by the time it got to San Antonio, it had come ashore in Brownsville, as often happens, um, and as a hurricane of, of, of probably Cat 1, Cat 2 hurricane, and then slowly worked its way north and east, funneling along the Edwards Plateau, literally moving its way in part because of the geography, steering the storm directly to Flash Flood Alley, um, and dropped north of San Antonio 17 to 20 inches, um, depending on where this happened. Uh, the downtown core got only seven inches, um, but north of the watershed got upwards of triple that amount of rain. And so on the west side creeks that sort of drain the western part of the hills to San Antonio's north and west, the flood came screaming down these creeks, which were narrow, shallow, and immediately blew out of their banks at a speed that no one on the west side had seen quite that way before and tore through the housing that abutted those creeks, sometimes in the immediate flood zone, sometimes a block or two away from it. These were shacks. They were lived in by the poorest of poor citizens of San Antonio. Where they got work was mostly manual labor in the stockyards, which were on the west side, um, in the laundry systems that were on the west side, which in many respects had already become a sacrifice zone. It's where the incinerators were. It's where the oil tank farms were. Um, those larger structures were relatively undamaged, but the housing was just splintered. And one of the things I was able to see and thus illuminate for readers was the images that the U.S. Army took of railroads that crossed through these neighborhoods against whose trestles so many of the houses would ultimately come to rest and many of the bodies would be trapped underneath this rubble. So you can see uh, the force of the water, which I tried to capture as best I could. You can see what it did to the housing and to the bodies that disappeared. And I was able to give names to many of those who died um, because they kept reasonably good records. The Spanish language newspapers converted everybody's English names, if there were English names, to Spanish. The English language new paper did the reverse, and they all misspelled everybody's name. So it took me a long time to sort of sort through this process. And as I sorted through the death records, something else became clear, that the city of San Antonio's official death record, which was 51, was woefully lacking. They would refuse to count those who disappeared and whose bodies were not found. And I get why they do that. Um, but I also found people whose bodies were recovered who were never named in the official record. Um, and I have stories that I would come upon of uh, folks who had gone out to El Paso and other places for work, heard about the flood, worked their way back to San Antonio, only to discover that their spouses and partners and children had disappeared. So we know they existed. They're just not noted in the official record. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to build as accurate a record as I could 
um, and name people as they would have been named themselves. Um, and that took a long time. And so I got, I probably added 30 people to the death records that we know of and then found um, police officials in San Antonio and, and New Braunfels and San Marcos, which are two smaller cities up to San Antonio's north and east, who said the same thing, which was, we know more people died than we have records of. And I use that commentary to sort of say, look, if we're going to talk about the flood and unequalness, note not just the last names and 90 plus percent of those who died uh, and or were injured were Spanish uh, surnamed, but also note that there are people who were missing and, you know, whole families were wiped out, a mother, a father and seven children. Um, who just simply disappeared. Their shack disappeared, their animals disappeared, their carriage disappeared. Whatever they had was swept downstream, uh, never to be seen again. And part of the consequence is that nobody looked. And so one of the first records of deaths was a baby that had been swept from somebody's arms and was found seven miles downstream. But that's the last time anybody went down that seven-mile stretch from the city's core to do any uh, rescue and or recovery operations. So, you know, there were things that didn't happen, and I know it didn't happen because of the way in which the reporting um, occurred. But I think some of what we're looking at is a flood that just tore apart the human networks that existed on the west side. Meanwhile, the flood roared down the San Antonio, the main trunk of the San Antonio River, um, and did what it had always done. The San Antonio River, at its main trunk of it, was serpentine. It just went wherever it wanted to go because that's what rivers do that are not concretized. And so there's a great bend in the river, which is where the main hub of the river walk is today. And rivers have no respecting, when they're in flood stage, of corners. They just jump banks. And that's what happened in this case. And effectively, the way the city had built its north-south roads running parallel along various parts of the river, they became conduits for that. So there's a river now, a street now called Broadway that arcs out of the city to the north that used to be called River Road, aptly named. It became a flood channel. Uh, St. Mary Street and, and others became other flood channels. So the moment the river leaped out of its banks, it comes screaming down these main automobile-driven corridors to hammer into buildings, inundate much of the downtown core, wipe out the newspaper's capacity in their press room uh, to, to put out newspapers for one or two days, um, filled hotels and their lobbies, so much so that one of the fascinating things um, that was, I thought was an oral legend, as it turns out it was true, is the Gunter Hotel, which still exists today in downtown San Antonio. Its form of flood control was to have pulleys in the lobby ceiling that would drop ropes down when floods started to rise. They would pick up the furniture, elevate it above the flood line, wait for the flood to sweep through the lobby and then exit. They'd sweep it out and then drop the furniture down. That's, you know, that's pretty effective flood control. Um, but it also tells you nothing else had been done in the city uh, that for the last two centuries or more 
had been flooding rather substantially. So we've got two different stories here. And the Spanish language journalists helped me understand um, from the West Side's vantage point, people lost their lives. From the Central Corps' vantage point, people lost money and material goods. And that is a story that then would drive much of what happens when the recovery begins. I'm curious also about uh, relief efforts in the aftermath of the flood. You talked earlier about the importance of these Red Cross records to uh, kind of expanding the story that you were trying to tell here. So can you tell us about relief and recovery in the days after the flood? Who offered relief? How effective were the relief efforts? How does how do the politics of relief kind of reflect the multiple narratives and stories and experiences of the flood itself? Yeah, so there, God, there's so many different stories that part of what I tried to do um, was to think about the different actors in this story of immediate relief. Um, and here's where Cruz Azul and the other mutual aid societies on the West Side take precedence effectively because they were on the scene uh, immediately as the flood was erupting. Um, and did yeoman labor. I mean, they were in the waters, they were pulling people out, not as representatives necessarily of their organizations, although that's how they would later be identified, but they were just active citizens that reflected the kind of social service network that these mutual aid societies had created. Again, some of this was parish-based, uh, some of it was sort of um, secular in orientation. Um, often these mutual aid societies were managed by, as Cruz Azul was, by women. Um, so already its own kind of story here, who were lawyers, doctors, journalists, um, and who, you know, utilized money from the Mexican consulate in San Antonio uh, to help bring aid immediately to their local population. So some of this is pulling people out of water, some of which is... Um, in that same moment, setting up uh, food stations, clothing, medical care. They even had an ambulance at one of their sites on the west side. So good a job did Cruz Azul do that the national chapter of the Red Cross, shortly after this process, basically turned that work all of its work in that same regard. They weren't competing with one another, um, but they turned that work over to Cruz Azul because they were, they were Spanish fluent. They were from the community. And impressively for the national record, it's like, I think based on the telegrams that were flying back and forth between the national reps on the ground and the leadership in Washington, D.C., they distrusted the local chapter of the Red Cross, whose philanthropy was limitless at one level. They raised money, they got food, they brought clothing and stuff to the West Side, but was limited by the very racial, racial characterizations that <laughs> it was it was fascinating listening to these conversations because it was clear that from the local chapter's point of view, too much help was a bad set of dependencies that they did not want to encourage. And so when they talked about flood victims, that is the local chapter, the people they heralded on the West Side were white people who refused aid, 
The middle class neighborhoods that got flooded just north of the downtown core, also white, also refused aid. And in its own reports, the local chapter said, these are the people that we admire. Those who don't want our aid, the people who do want it, we're suspicious of. So there, it's, it's a sort of very, not puzzling because it's racially driven, but absolutely fascinating window into the dynamics of racism in a city in the midst of a disaster. The other thing, though, is important is what, what, what the Red Cross at the national level, in fact, did. Many of those who had worked in Tulsa came down to San Antonio and saw immediately, because they had just been up at the race war in Tulsa, that changed the demographics of the city. And you've got many of the same kinds of reactions to those who have been in oppressed situations for whom you have, let's call it limited sympathy for, which sort of drove them in another direction. One of them who sort of was cycled out, detailed out of San Antonio after two months, wrote a piece for um, a progressive journal that said this flood should give the San Antonio an important opportunity to elevate those on the west side by better housing away from the flood zones and all of that, which of course the local chapter poo-pooed and said absolutely that's not going to happen. So the national chapter actually took over the rebuilding of the West Side housing because it had no interest in, in doing the kind of um, disdainful work that the local chapter did. So this is a very complicated story that is complicated further by the fact that the U.S. military, who also streamed into town to aid the city, um, did great work on the west side. They did great work on in the central core. They, they set up guard points all over the town, which revealed another story, which is how the pol political dynamics of San Antonio resisted, resisted, keep in mind, as much relief as was being offered to it. So, for example, there were political infighting between those on the city's commission about who would get credit for what kind of relief work. And the army is sitting there going, um, we're trying to help people. Like, get the politics out of here. But the politics could not be gotten out of here. Um, and so it was almost a relief for the military to finally upload themselves and literally go back to their base where they didn't have to deal with these um, cat in cat cat fighting among the local politicians. But the other thing that the city did, and I mean by this the political leadership of the city, was to refuse a national campaign on the part of the Red Cross to raise money for victims in San Antonio. They wanted nothing to do with a national campaign that pointed out the city had been devastated by the flood. They wanted the Red Cross dollars. They just didn't want it to go public, at which point the Red Cross said, then we're not going to give you more money. Um, but the strategy on the part of the city's goal was this is a big tourist town. They had no desire to let people know how bad things were, how bad the death count actually was. So they underreported the death count. They sent out press releases to every major newspaper, which the New York Times and other newspapers published verbatim, which said, we're in great shape. Don't worry about us. Tourism, come on down. And one of the consequences of that 
was that when four years later, Miami had a hurricane that wiped out big chunks of Miami and threatened its tourist industry, they took a page out of San Antonio's playbook and did the exact same said, ah, we don't really want national funding. Although under the table, they're writing, please send us more money. And the Red Cross said, we've seen this ploy before. We're not going to give it to you if you don't allow us to um, identify the needs that your town has. So it turns out relief isn't relief. Philanthropy isn't just philanthropy. They tell stories of cross currents that are racial, that are in conflict with national chapters and local chapters, that tell us a lot about the social dynamics of a place in the aftermath of a disaster. And part of that aftermath, too, is, is a longer tale that, that continues well into the 1920s. And part of that story is a building boom that you yeah. see in San Antonio. And there's kind of two elements to this building boom that I, I want to ask you about. The first one is how does this, this, uh, uh, this, this boom manifest in flood control? How does the city try to, uh, you know, if not completely stop flooding, how does it try to shape the way that these waterways will flood in San Antonio? And then how does uh, the, the commercial sector in San Antonio also respond to this flood? What, what are they building um, in the aftermath of the flood? And how are both of these elements of, of, of new construction in the city kind of doubling down on these inequalities that are already present in the urban landscape? Yeah, so here's, here's one of the fascinating things about the 1920s. There is no FEMA. The Army Corps was not yet in the business of building um, flood control for a particular place, a city in this case, San Antonio. That would happen after the Mississippi flood several years later, but not now. So part of what the business community and the civic elite decided, as I mentioned before, the narrative was now shifting. We've got to defend downtown, the west side we can deal with later. The narrative would then become, we need to build a dam. There's no outside money to help us do this. And we just told the Red Cross, we really don't need this outside funding. Um, so even if they had wanted outside funding, they'd basically um, destroyed that argument by their own refusal to take outside support. So the political consensus emerged. And when I say political consensus, I mean the political consensus of the civic elite, the commercial elite, all of whom were white the downtown structure of San Antonio, decided that they would build a dam, they would do it through a bond issue that would ultimately go through the political process, um, would ultimately secure upwards of $4 million uh, to do a number of things, one of which was to build uh, this concrete dam, now known as the Omos Dam, to the north of the downtown core that would capture virtually all of the main trunks watershed um, that stretches up 10 miles north of where the dam currently is, maybe close to 15 miles in some cases in that watershed. And it has done what it was supposed to do. They understood that part of flood control and did a good job of it. But some of the money was also spent on other things. For example, as I mentioned earlier, the San Antonio River was serpentine. Miles of curvilinear sort of coursing through the city, and they decided they were going to straighten the river, 
they were ultimately going to use uh, some of the funds, not only in the straightening, um, which the Army Corps, the Army, um, U.S. Army air flights showed them what could happen and how they could do it. But in the process, also look at the Great Bend of the River, which is, as I said earlier, is where much of the river walk would be centered. And by the early 1930s, would have a flood control channel that would take water, sluice it directly through the downtown. You could keep the central um, big bend and separate it from that flood control. So now you have the possibility of doing two things simultaneously, which the city ultimately would do. You've just defended the downtown core and its streetscape. So investment capital, local but especially national, now looks at the downtown core and said, huh, it's defended from floods. I would never have invested there before because like the Gunter Hotel, you know, it, it periodically would get devastated. Now, all of a sudden, millions of dollars are pouring into the city and some local capitalists are doing the same. To build up a streetscape and its crowning jewels, these large buildings that would rise, that reflected the 1920s sense of what a modern city looked like. Suddenly, San Antonio had a skyline, not as big as New York's, not as big as Dallas's, not certainly not as big as Chicago's, but for San Antonio, it was big. Um, and so that served as a symbol of modernity, much as did the concrete that was poured into the Olmos Dam. Streets were widened. They were hardened with um, macadam. The whole structure of how business was organized emerged. And one of the things that I discovered by looking at all of the various buildings is the real estate industry had its own building. And so all of the real estate people gathered together. There were architects who were in another building and con uh, contractors joined them. So you're starting to see both occupational segregation in terms of these buildings. And then, because I knew some of the names of folks who went into this, I said, well, where do they live? Well, it turns out they all live upstream, many of these most uh, wealthy of people in neighborhoods like Olmos Park, where I would live for a time in San Antonio, and other neighborhoods that I could identify. And I was able to track the, the commuting that then happened in cars by leading architects and investors and others from these automobile suburbs that are elevated above the floodplain going downtown to work. So you've got multiple segregations happening, one of which is residential, the other of which is by occupation. And then you walk a mile west of these gleaming new skyscrapers and you're on the west side where the poor still lived in shacks, where there was no running water, there were no stormwater systems, there's no sewage system, they use pit toilets. And within a mile of this gleaming new city lies the poor older city that has basically been reconstructed post-flood and whose creeks, although supposed to be reconstructed, had not been and would not largely be until the 1960s and the 1970s. So relief came to those who had power and did not come to those who had any. And as you just alluded to, flooding is not going to stop in San Antonio after 1921. Just the shape of flooding is, is going to change a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, kind of jumping ahead a bit into uh, the, the later portion of the 20th century, 
how did subsequent floods help to spawn what can really only be called an environmental justice movement in the city of San Antonio? Uh, and, and, and then what did these activists achieve in the city uh, through their activism? Yeah, so here's where the story becomes a different kind of tale um, than is usually discussed in environmental justice literature. Part of the tale is consistent. Here is an inequitable situation in which the poor of the city, whatever their color, um, were, were left behind by the modernizing city that I've just described. And they would be left behind for upwards of 50 years. But in those 50 years, a series of floods in the, in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s would sweep through the west side of San Antonio. They would not be as fatal as the 21 flood was, but it got to a point where the newspapers would talk about what they called the, quote, old trouble spots, a very term of which emerged in an article about a flood in the 1950s. And I went, <laughs> no kidding. They're trouble spots because nothing has happened there, despite the city committing in 21 to do something with the West Side Creeks, the five major West Side Creeks. Very little work had been done. So when they spent $4 million on a flood and other flood control work to, to save the downtown core, they spent $6,000 clearing out some of the creeks. That's not exactly equitable spending of public funding, um, as one could imagine it. And those inequities continued up until the 1960s, early 1970s. But a couple of things broke that system of neglect. The first of which was um, the emergence of Henry B. Gonzalez, uh, one of the great congressional leaders of the mid part of the 20th century, who ran an insurgent campaign against a conservative white candidate who was expected to win in a walk, except that Henry beat him and became the congressional uh, representative for downtown and west side San Antonio. He had grown up in the west side. He had been there for the 21 flood. He lived in a neighborhood that didn't flood, but nonetheless knew a lot about that flood just by osmosis. And over the next 40 years had seen what flooding did to the west side. So Henry B. goes to Washington. Henry B. is his nickname in the city of San Antonio. And Henry proved to be a really good politician because the moment he got to Washington, he started to use the levers of power, appropriation dollars um, and the like, to develop a consensus in the Appropriation Committee and other uh, related entities that something had to happen for the West Side, which had been promised all this stuff, but never had received flood control dollars. So where in 1921, everybody said, no, no, the elite said no outside funding. Henry is the one who goes, gets the outside funding. And he does it in a way that's just genius. Um, and so in 1965, shortly after he was elected to Congress, there was another flood on the West Side. The same old trouble spots emerged. Some people died. Houses were flooded. People barely escaped. Uh, Henry is on a plane instantly that arrives in San Antonio as the water, floodwaters are still coursing through the West Side. He goes and does a very quick survey, goes back on the next, the next flight back to, to Washington, D.C., queries the Appropriation Committee, uh, seeks from the Speaker of the House uh, a, a congressional committee to come do an analysis. They come to an analysis, and they've been very well cued by Henry as to what they should analyze, and they embarrass the city's leadership. 
The, the San Antonio River Authority gets pilloried by these visitors. The city of San Antonio and the county of Bear County, all of whom had encumbered money for decades that was supposed to go to the west side, had never released that funding. They worked on other parts of flood control around the city, but not the west side. Well, Henry fixed that and suddenly was able to get money that would then go uh, be encumbered for the uh, Corps of Army Engineers, the Army Corps of Engineers, to come start to reconfigure the west side creeks. That's the outside top-down narrative. The bottom grassroots upwelling that would meet this top-down process emerged after another flood, this one in 1974. Henry's work is starting, but another flood strikes. It hits Zarzamora Creek. It floods out all sorts of homes, takes out bridges. It does what every flood has always done, and it also ticked a lot of people off. Well, it turns out in the three years before that point, a grassroots organized was, group was or, quietly organizing on the west side, known as Citizens Organized for Public Services, a nice banal term for what would become the most powerful grassroots organizations in the city's history of the 20th century anyway. It was parish-based. It was union, union labor. It was folks who worked in the West Side military bases, Fort, Fort um, uh, Lackland Air Base um, and other air bases, Brooks Army Air Base and the like. Uh, Kelly Air Base, all of which were on the west and south sides, huge facilities that had served in World War II, uh, Korea, Vietnam, pouring billions of dollars in the west side that basically created a west side Latino middle class. And it's those people that the organizers tapped and their expertise and mostly women, again, much like Cruz Azul. And as it turns out, in the aftermath of the book coming out in 2021, I've had all of these emails and conversations with people who said, my mother was involved in cops and her mother was involved in Cruz Azul. And I sort of speculated that that was the case, that there was a genealogical connection. Well, it turns out the genealogy turned out to be true. Um, so now I should have to rewrite the book so that those things would be connected. But the, the really interesting thing that... Um, um, Ernie Cortez, who was the lead organizer of this process and who was using the work of Saul Alinsky and others to build up a community-driven movement, the first thing they focused on was drainage, floods, and flood control. And the 1974 flood gave them the sort of entryway into this story. And so there's this moment that I could not make up no filmmaker would use it because it's just too on point, but it happened. Uh, and I've got so many records of people's oral histories and newspaper accounts of the event and journalists' accounts of the event um, that I know it occurred. So imagine this. The flood of 74 led cops to organize a public meeting, the first such meeting on the West Side. And they invited the city manager to communicate with this organization and its membership about the flood. The city manager thought he was coming to give a talk. What he didn't realize, a la Saul Alinsky and um, the, the sort of new reform um, activism, is he was going to be talked to. 
So he's on the stage, and suddenly it turns out he's the focus of the conversation, a conversation in which more than 500 people who gathered in that audience let him have it. And they didn't just do it rhetorically because they'd been doing their homework. They had been burrowing into the city's budgets dating back to the 1930s and the 20s where funds had been encumbered for West Side Creek rehabilitation flood control, but had never been spent, particularly on the creek that had flooded in 1974. So they called them on it. They said, we've got the data here. Another member of COPS had a slideshow having taken photographs of all of the that they could find from newspapers in the ensuing years from 21 and also pictures of the, of the 1974 flood and said, here's the history in photography. Here is the history based on your budgets. And then they said, what are you going to do about it? And his answer, which was accurate, he said, I'm the city manager. I am not the political force in this town. You need to come to the city council. And the next meeting would be a week or so later. They said, put us on the agenda, which he did. And the same thing happened at city council, which the city council had never experienced before. I don't know that the city manager uh, warned them in advance. But another 500 people showed up in the city council. And a woman, a spokeswoman, stood up before them and just let them have it. What was interesting, as she spoke, every member of the audience stood up and crowded around her so that she was located in her social network, confronting an almost entirely white city council that was elected at large, so represented basically the north side of San Antonio, north side middle class and upper class interests. And they just nailed the city council. The mayor to give him credit, turned to the city manager and said, is what I'm hearing true? That we have encumbered money, but never spent it, which tells you something about what the city mayor didn't know about his own budget. And the city manager said, yeah. And the mayor, again, to his credit, said, you got four hours to find the money. It was about seven o'clock at night. At 11 o'clock, the budget committee and the city manager walked back into the building and had found the money. I mean, it hadn't disappeared. And suddenly, a flood of dollars starts to move from the city hall to the west side. That with the federal dollars that Henry B. Gonzalez was now sluicing into town, not just for flood control, but for streets, for water pipes, for sewage lines, within a decade, Cops, this once unheralded organization, moved half a billion dollars, federal, state, and local monies, to the west side to begin to alleviate the social disarray of that neighborhood, but its grassroots identification of the issues that are driving what would be get, what would receive those kinds of fundings. So it's an extraordinary story that then comes with political change. As I mentioned, the city council was elected at large. Cops then went after the city's charter. In the aftermath of the voting right legislation of 64 and 65, the Department of Justice under Lyndon B. Johnson, and don't forget he was a Texan, turned to the city and said, this is not one person, one vote. 
you're electing at large. This is illegal. It's as illegal as it was in Alabama, and it's now illegal in Texas. And you're going to have to change the city charter. Cops forced the city to rewrite its charter so that suddenly there were district elections for the city council, and immediately the face of that council changed. An African-American one on the east side, Henry B. Henry uh, Cisneros, who would ultimately become mayor, became uh, the delegate from the West Side. All of a sudden, the dynamics of power shifted. And the process of that is like an extraordinary story of an environmental justice movement, not just moving the dial on environmental injustice, but also the political structure that encased that injustice and had done so for decades uh, and through the um, 20th century. What that did to the West Side was to produce new generations of activists that grew up in the wake of cops, some of whom were members of cops, some of whom actually challenged cops. They did voter registration drives. They did all sorts of political activism that then swept out of San Antonio across the Southwest up to Chicago so that San Antonio became like Atlanta for the black civil rights movement. Its universities on the west side, Our Lady of the Lake and St. Mary's University were, were hubs for activism. Cops had what it called Cops University that trained fellow activists from Phoenix and Tucson and Los Angeles. Ernie Cortez, who had been its leader, actually went to LA and set up shop there and did for LA what he had done in San Antonio. And so there's this real dynamic of political power shifting in the city so that the West Side, which is still the poorest part of the city, its two zip codes are essentially um, better off than they were in the 70s, but still among the poorest, nonetheless is also the source of much of the political activism in the city of San Antonio now 50 years later. It's been an extraordinary ride, um, and I was very lucky to live in San Antonio to watch this process unfold. I, I love this part of, of the story. Um, you know, you take what could be a, a, a pretty simple kind of pat story of, of tragedy and you turn it into one really of empowerment, of yeah. people seizing yeah. power for themselves in the aftermath of a tragedy, which I think makes for really, really good history. And as you said, a, a story that, you know, a, a Hollywood producer might balk at in, in how kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of perfectly symmetrical it is. So I, I yeah, really like But that if part. there is yeah. a Hollywood producer that is to like <laughs> this could be a really cool movie, yeah, let right? alone documentary. So as we begin to wrap up here, yeah. I always like to ask my guests to uh, think about their book from the perspective of one of their readers and yeah, to great. think about what you hope one takeaway that a reader might get from this book might be, you know, thinking about someone uh, uh, reflecting back on West Side Rising from the vantage point of a year or five years down the line. What do you hope that they remember or take away from the book? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what I sort of thought deeply about that question, um, in part because I teach this stuff, right? And so, like you, I've got a pretty traditional aged student population, so 17, 18 to 20, 22 in that way. And my colleagues and I, for the last decade or more, have been talking about how we teach climate change and other environmental issues, environmental justice and the like, um, and recognize that one of the things that we're really good is, 
telling the really downbeat part of this story. Um, one of, a local columnist calls me the master of disaster. And it's like, yeah, is that really what I want to be called? Um, because if it's only about disaster and not agency, how people changed their own lives. The most oppressed people in San Antonio changed the conditions under which they lived. That's a story I want my students to hear. That's a story I would like the general population to read. And I wrote the book as best I could in a way that is um, towards a general reader, not just my colleagues like you and others, uh, though I want them to read it also, of course. Um, but, but it is about the capacity of human beings, individually and most especially collectively, to gather together in one kind of coalition or another and change the way that their lives operate. We may not change global climate change, but we can alter the conditions under which we contribute to that process on an individual basis and most especially on a collective basis to force larger changes. I mean, think about what cops did. They didn't just change streets and drainage and schools and housing, though they did that. They changed the political landscape in San Antonio in a way that has better represented the lives of those who were poor, black, brown, largely disempowered until the 1970s. That's, that's like something to celebrate, even if we also say, you know, it went as far as it went and it needs to go farther. Of course, everything does. But I want readers to take away the notion that they have power, power over themselves and in collaboration with others, power within the political system to help change the nature of our lives and the lives of those who will follow behind us. I love that. And, and that's one of the ways that I, I try to emphasize that to my students whenever I can. So one of the ways I think about history, too, is that in the end, history is and should be an empowering enterprise. Not because it's all good, because as you and I both know, a lot of history is, in fact, about humans often at their worst. But it's about people who are doing exactly what, what you're saying, right? Taking those those moments and taking power for themselves within those moments as well. And that humans, yeah. as you said, do yeah. have do have agency and can, in fact, change the world when they come together with a, a noble goal in mind. So yeah, I, I, I think right. that, that's, that's a great takeaway. And that'll definitely be something that I think about this book uh, further down the line myself. So... For my last question, I always like to get a preview from my guests about <laughs> what they're what they're working on next. And I know that this book had, as you said before, uh, a very long gestation period. You've been working on it for for quite a while, and even though it hasn't been out for very long, I imagine that you probably had some overlapping projects. What are you working on right now? Well, so that, that's a that's a great question, and you know, I feel lucky to have figured out finally that there was a centennial coming for the 21 flood. I better get my button gear, um, which managed to happen, thank God. Uh, but in the process, I was also, because that meant that I was working on the final parts of this book during the pandemic. Um, and as sort of a, uh, a related pandemic project and related to this book, I did a, a, a collection, a companion piece, which was that Spanish language journalism that defined um, how the West Side experienced that flood in ways that I had never seen before. So I, I did a, uh, got it translated and then transcribed. And so there's a bilingual edition that is, and the English title is uh, San Antonio's Tragic Flood or something like that. It's an ebook 
Trinity Press put it out. Um, one of my students helped me map various kinds of things that, that sort of frame that book. And in the midst of doing that, um, I had conversations with a small press called Chin Press Music in Seattle and its new offshoot Reverberations book about a collection of essays I've been writing over the last five years or so um, and heavily based um, on pandemic stuff that I, you know, I was trying to work through other kinds of issues. The book's called Natural Consequences, Intimate Essays for a Planet in Peril, um, and drew on some of the work that I did in San Antonio to think about fires in California, to think about watershed issues in the Golden State, to look at how we think about public lands um, and the indigeneity issues that emerge from landscapes like Yosemite that was taken from the indigenous people, the national forests that were equally taken from those uh, folks for whom these were ancestral uh, uh, treaty and unceded property, um, and start to write about the natural consequences that arise from us building in fire zones, from us building in flood zones, from us building on other people's lands. Um, and that sort of helped me think through um, sort of contemporary issues. So there's a whole section on, on Claremont, California, where I live, using this small 35,000 population community as a way to speak to the big issues like climate change and other kinds of things. Um, and urban renewal, what does that mean? Who gets renewed? Who gets wiped out in that process? That I actually love this book um, as a way to put two pieces together, the West Side Rising and Natural Consequences. They actually speak to each other, although they don't talk about one another um, in those texts themselves. And I've got a number of other projects about public lands. Um, I've got a book called Burn Scars, um, that is an anthology of historical documents that I hope will come out in the next 18 months or so, that looks at fire suppression um, and its aftermath um, using Spanish colonial records and Forest Service records, both of which, as it turns out, um, racialize fire suppression. The Spanish, because they wanted to, as they put it, denaturalize the indigenous people of California who regularly used fire. They didn't want them to do that. They wanted them to farm. And the Forest Service, who called those who used fire, indigenous and white alike, as Paiute foresters. It's like, oh my God. Um, and that led to the notion of fire suppression in a, in a sustained way that we're trying to work our way out of um, as a consequence of the huge wildland fire episodes that California has confronted since 2003. So there's a lot of projects. We'll see where they go. Um, but I would say that, like you, I feel very lucky to be in a profession that allows me um, leeway to write about how the past inflects the present and helps shape the future without being um, rigorous in terms of deterministically doing so. Everything is contingent. Everything is contested. And we've got to watch how that happens over time, as I hope West Side Rising also reveals. You and I were talking before we started recording about how uh, we both feel that floods are understudied in, in history. And I feel like, and maybe I just don't know the literature, but I feel like fires are similar in that way. That obviously there, there's been some good work on fire, but yeah. there's so much work to be done. So I'm really glad to hear that, that you're working on that project in particular. Those all sound great, but that one especially kind of grabbed my ear, grabbed my good, attention. Good, good. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. 
Dr. Charmiller is the W.M. Keck Professor of Environmental Analysis and History at Pomona College and is the author of the award-winning new book, West Side Rising, How San Antonio's 1921 Flood Devastated a City and Sparked a Latino Environmental Justice Movement, which came out last year in 2021 with Trinity University Press. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Char. Thank you so much, Steve. This was, this was a blast. <laughs>